again, we'll put things in a dramatic context. We left off on Friday with the battle was about to begin. And uh, the Bhagavad Gita, the first chapter, uh, sets the scene. They're on the battlefield. And uh, the very first verse of the Gita, in a sense, reveals what the problem was. The very first verse of the Gita in Sanskrit is Dhamma Chetre, Kuru Chetre, Samaveta, Yutsava, Mamaka, Pandavas, Chaiva, Kima, Kurva, the Sanjaya. Dhritarashtra speaking. Dhritarashtra is the blind king. The blind king, the uncle of the Pandavas. And he's speaking to, he's speaking to Sang, uh, Sangjaya. So Dhritarashtra, if you remember him, he's the blind king and he's not on the battlefield. But he's speaking to the secretary, Sanjaya. And then at the end of the Bhagavad Gita, Sanjaya will say that by the mercy of Vyasa, Sanjaya is a disciple of Vyasa. Vyasa is the editor of the Vedas, the person that composed, divided the Vedas, composed the Mahabharata. So Vyasa is the guru of Sanjaya, and Sanjaya will say at the end of the Gita, but by the mercy of Vyasa, Vyasa, Prasada, Chutavan, by the mercy of Vyasa, I was able to hear what Krishna said to Arjuna. And then Sanjaya is reporting it to Dhritarashtra. So the book begins um, in that way. And Dhritarashtra, the very first verse, Dhritarashtra asked a question. He says, Dharma Kshetri, on the field of Dharma, because the battle is taking place on a field which was considered to be a holy place, on the field of Dharma, Dharma Kshetri, Kuru Kshetri, on the field of the Kurus, which is their dynasty. Uh, some of Eitayutsava, these soldiers, were assembled, desiring to fight. Mamaka Pandavas Chaiva Kimakurvata Sanjaya. He says that my sons and the sons of Pandu, my brother. Now, this was kind of a nasty thing to say. This was really the whole problem because according to Dharma, according to law, according to the moral code, uh, because his younger brother died, Pandu, Pandu's sons were really his sons. They were really considered to be his sons. He was legally and morally responsible for them. In the battlefield, he's concerned about what his sons and the Pandas, what did they do? So from the very beginning, he was never able to see them as his own sons. He was sort of, he even participated in assassination plots. He could never really accept them as his own sons, and he kept trying to get the kingdom for his own sons. So the battle begins, uh, the, the Gita begins in that way, and then they blow their conch shells, sort of like, you know, the battle's about to begin. And it specifically said that when Krishna Arjuna blew their conch shells, Divyaushanko, that only the conch shells of Krishna and Arjuna are described as divya, which means divine. So from the very beginning, it's understood that Krishna and Arjuna sort of stand apart from everyone else. Their conch shells are divine. And then Arjuna says to Krishna, Sena yor, vayor madhyayi Please place my chariot between the two armies. Between the two armies. So it's really a, it's history. Uh, within the tradition it's considered history, but it's also this universal symbolism at the same time. I mean, the symbolism doesn't mean it's not history. But, uh, because all of us, in a sense, have to choose between good and evil. All of us have to make decisions. And uh, even the verse that says, even the word rata, my chariot, I, I explained earlier in this course that um, there's a very ancient Vedic analogy where the chariot's compared to the body. So the idea is that all of us are seated within our own bodies. And within, in fact, uh, 
there's a verse which will say that Krishna placed Arjuna's Ratha Uttama, Ratha which means like sort of supreme chariot or his ultimate chariot. So the human body is considered to be the most important body, the most, well, the most evolved body. So in a sense, all of us are in a Ratotama. All of us are in a vehicle, which is the highest vehicle in this world on the earth. And all of us within these vehicles are situated between two opposing forces. Not simply political good and evil, but even in terms of our own moral choices. Whether we take the high road or the low road in our own life. So, so the Gita starts out with this very powerful image of Krishna placing Arjuna's chariot between the two armies. And then Arjuna has a, uh, well, almost a nervous breakdown, really, if you read it carefully. Because, uh, as I've said before, on both sides, everyone's kind of family. Most of the kings and princes on both sides related to each other. And Arjuna doesn't want to fight. And, uh, but the arguments he gives reveal, as Krishna will point out, that Arjuna is not really thinking spiritually, he's thinking material, materially. Therefore, for example, Arjuna says to Krishna, King Nodra Jaina Govinda, what is the use of a kingdom for us? And, and the point is, Arjuna, it's not really about you. It's not really about you having a kingdom. There's a, there are actually higher principles here. I mean, to put it in context, imagine if you woke up one morning and you read somewhere on the, in the news that uh, there had been a, a, a the government in this country had been usurped. Someone took over the government, suspended the constitution, and there was no longer a constitutional government. There was now a dictatorship in the country. However, the dictatorship promised that they would really be nice to everyone and even protect your bank deposits. So, most people would not be satisfied with that situation. Most people, I think, at least in this country, would expect that people loyal to the government, to constitutional government would fight to restore a constitutional government. So effectively, back then, there was such a thing as constitutional government. It was not absolute monarchy, like Louis XIV, you know, l'état c'est moi, I am the state. The, the political culture described in the Mahabharata is not absolute monarchy, it's constitutional monarchy. There were principles, laws, dharma. And so uh, Duryodhana and Dhritarashtra, usurping the throne, had essentially suspended a constitutional regime and were ruling illegitimately. And so the battle was not just like, I want the kingdom. No, I want the kingdom. In fact, the Pandavas were willing to give it up. They were willing to give up the kingdom and just live in peace for the, to avoid war. Krishna himself made several diplomatic trips back and forth between Hastinapur and uh, Indraprastha trying to avoid the war. So on the Pandava side, they, in fact, the Pandavas got to the point where they even said that because we are Kshatriyas, we're warriors, we're required by Dharma, by law, to govern, therefore just give us five villages. Just give us five villages to rule, at least allow us the dignity of acting as princes, as warriors. And Duryodhana refused, and Krishna made efforts. And when Krishna went on, on a diplomatic mission, Duryodhana tried to arrest him, which of course wasn't successful. So, so it finally came down to this, and that's why Krishna will tell Arjun, like, Arjun, what are you thinking about here? Because this is not about you, it's not about whether you want a kingdom or not. Arjun says, that those for whose sake we want the kingdom. Like the only reason to gain a kingdom is so you can invite your family over and have family reunions and, reunions and show off your kingdom. So Arjuna actually says, like, what's the use of having a kingdom if our family, that's the only reason we want it anyway, if they're dead, like all our relatives. 
And so Krishna's going to tell Arjuna, it's not really about that, Arjuna. There's really something more important going on here. And if you remember the whole cosmic context, the battle to save the universe, the spiritual aspect, Arjuna had forgotten all that. He'd forgotten even the material cosmic aspect of it, not to speak of the spiritual aspect of it, and was just thinking sort of in human terms, like, well, I don't know if I want the kingdom. So Krishna's going to talk to him about that. They're going to talk about it. Now, um, so that's basically the context. I feel required as my dharma to all of you to uh, comment on a few things in the, in the book by Rodriguez. <laughs> so I, I hope I'm not acting with malice. Um, it's very well known that the Bhagavad Gita talks about bhakti yoga, jnana yoga, and karma yoga, or they're called margas, paths, or yoga processes. And uh, the book says two things which I think are a little bit incoherent. And the second one is right, and the first one is less right. So, uh, the first statement, which occurs on page 155, is a particularly effective aspect of the Gita is that it does not present a simple unified philosophy. So the Gita is effective because it does not present a unified philosophy. Uh, okay. But then again... On page 163, the same author says, although it presents a variety of acceptable paths to both God and liberation, the Bhagavad Gita makes its most compelling case for Bhakti Yoga, the Raja Yoga path, sort of the, you know, classical yoga, you sit down in different postures, meditate. So that path is endorsed, but the most accomplished yogis are those with their minds absorbed in, in Krishna. That's 647. Similarly, jnana yoga, the yoga of where you cultivate knowledge, uh, is given, but the highest jnana, the highest knowledge, is knowledge of God, of Krishna, most effectively attained through loving devotion. And karma yoga's detached and selfless action is best applied to devotion to Krishna. So it turns out that the raja yoga ultimately is about Krishna, and the jnana yoga ultimately is about Krishna, and the karma yoga is ultimately about Krishna, but there really isn't a unified philosophy. Okay. <laughs> so, anyway, I'll leave that to you to ponder. And uh, the Gita not only presents a unified philosophy, it actually gets more and more unified as it goes along. Krishna starts out, it's not aggressive, it's not fanatical. As the author says here, Krishna does honor different approaches because people at different stages in their life or different stages in different lives, have different needs, abilities, and so on and so forth. But it's all a hierarchy. The unity is that it's all... I guess just one example. There are many examples in the Gita, but um, here's just one. This is from chapter 12, text, uh, verses 8 to 11. We'll do this later. Uh, sorry, I just put it all in Sanskrit. just is easier. But um, Krishna says basically at 12.8 that what you should really do is just be in samadhi. Samadhi is the highest stage of the yoga system. We'll talk about that later more when we talk about the yoga sutras. But what you should really do is just fix your mind in God, in me, with love and devotion. And the verb he uses, samadhatsva, is just the same verb from which you get the noun samadhi. So I put bhakti samadhi. And then he says, if you can't do that, if you're unable to do that, then take up the regulated practice of bhakti yoga, practice bhakti yoga as a, as a spiritual discipline. If you're unable to do that, if you just can't do that, then uh, Krishna says literally, 
dedicate yourself just to working for God in the world, or for me. In other words, you can't practice spiritual life following principles, giving up certain things, and discipline yourself. So at least do something in the world for the sake of God, or Krishna. Just do something in the world, you know, whatever it may be. You can work and make money and contribute it to the spreading of wisdom in the world. If you can, just whatever, whatever you're able to do, do something. And if you can't do that, if you're, like Krishna says, a samarthos, if you're unable to do that, or a shaktosi, if you don't have the, the power to do that, then karma polityaga, give up the fruits of your work. And um, so this giving up the, Krishna, this is the language he uses throughout the Gita, and, and I want to use this to critique some of the statements here about karma yoga. Um, the idea is you do something. Like let's say you've got a job. And then uh, you get paid for your job. That's the follow, the fruit. So there's the work itself and the fruit of the work. You get paid. Or let's say you go to school. So the work itself is being a student and doing what students do. The follow, the fruit is you get a degree and some knowledge. So you get a degree. That degree makes you eligible to do other things. So the idea is that every action produces some result. Now, the difference between spiritual life and material life, or between virtuous life and unvirtuous life, is what you do with the follow. Krishna will say that you have a right to do your work in the world, but what do you do with the fruit? Do you use it for good, for evil? Do you offer it to something higher than yourself, or do you selfishly try to grab it and hoard it yourself? So it's what you do with the fruit that determines, in a sense, your status. Now, uh, in that regard, the definition of karma yoga. Uh, yeah, I want to read that, what our textbook says about karma yoga, uh, on page 160 and 61. Um, let's see. Attachment, karma, to the outcomes of actions. That's this. Follow, karma, follow. Attachment to the outcomes of actions, Krishna instructs, binds individuals to the laws of causality. That's karma. In other words, if the idea is if I do something in the world, and uh, let's say like I work a job, and then I get paid. So if I try to enjoy it, I don't use that money I get for some higher purpose, for some good, I just want to enjoy it selfishly, then I'm creating karma. Because I received something, but I didn't offer back. That's the idea. So if I didn't offer back, I become entangled in the laws of karma. So, while renunciation of such attachment can result in the highest attainment, this attitude to activity, known as niche kama karma, action without attachment, reorients the performance of deeds in the direction of moksha liberation. So, anyway, there's a few things to say here. First of all, uh, the author says that this karma yoga is called niche kama karma. This is actually not a term used in the Bhagavad Gita, but the, the idea is there. So, uh, there's a problem with this. There's a problem with this definition that was given in the textbook, which I want to correct. And that is, the word niche it is a prefix meaning not, and it's actually the same prefix you find in the word nirvana. In Sanskrit, uh, in order to make things sound better, easier to pronounce, they sometimes change boundary sounds, like this is a boundary between a prefix and a word. So, the near and nirvana and the niche, the niche comma is exactly the same thing, same word or prefix. So niche comma, comma, not, and you can say this means selfish or definitely, literally means selfish desire. And, and karma just means action. So 
what's wrong with this? Uh, well, apart from the fact that Christian doesn't use this term, but he kind of uses the language. <laughs> the problem is that nishkama karma, the word nishkama is grammatically a negative word. It means action without something. It doesn't say what the action is. It just says what it isn't. And actually, if you look at the Bhagavad Gita, you cannot practice karma yoga simply by negatively removing some element from your action. Like, okay, I'm going to do this, but I won't be selfish about it. So therefore, it's, it's karma yoga. That's not actually what Krishna says in the Gita. Uh, you actually have to do something positively also. There's a positive component that makes it karma yoga. It's not just you take something away from it, like selfishness. And this, by the way, is an extremely popular and widespread misconception in, in, in terms of the understanding of Hinduism. And that is that if you act in the world, typically, like whatever you do for a living, and then you just like come home, let's say a guy comes home and gives his wife a paycheck, or the woman uses her money for whatever, if you just do something for someone else, that's karma yoga. That's not exactly what Krishna says in the Gita, although it's a very popular conception. And uh, so we'll talk about what karma yoga really is. And we have to remember that the word yoga means to connect yourself to God, or to connect yourself to the highest truth. So uh, if I work, let's say, give the money to you, I'm certainly connected to you. I mean, you may be grateful to me, but I'm not necessarily connected to God. The idea of karma yoga is you're connected to God because you actually gave it to God, which may include taking care of your family. It doesn't mean your family starves and lives in a homeless shelter. But somehow or other, there has to be an explicit spiritual element. It's not just giving your money to someone else or giving or working for someone else. It's more than that, because it's yoga. So I'm going to give you some examples of that from uh, the Gita, of what karma yoga really is. Um, by the way, just one last word on this. There are many such hierarchies in the Gita. I just gave one, but there are many. So, um, okay, a, a typical verse which sort of gives the negative definition of karma yoga, you just give up your selfishness, is found at uh, 248, chapter 2, text 48. Yoga stuff, kuru karmani, I'll just translate it for you. Um, I actually helped to translate that Gita also, but uh, so I'll just, anyway, I'll do one here, another one. Uh, situated in yoga, literally standing in yoga, situated in yoga, uh, perform your actions giving up attachment. Giving up attachment. And uh, thus being equal, being equal in success and failure, becoming equal in success and failure, uh, that equalness, that equality where if my work succeeds, if it doesn't succeed, whatever. It's like totally whatever. Why? Because I'm not doing it for myself. Because I'm giving the fruit to someone else uh, I'm detached. And therefore, Krishna says that samatvam, that equalness, is yoga. Now the first thing is, obviously, and, and the example is given of Gandhi. Gandhi is the case study of someone that wasn't, didn't really care. I mean, he, he tried, he was cultivating detachment, but of course he did care. He was very passionately involved in his work. And most people that support their families do really care. It's not that, oh well, didn't get paid this week, Oh, well, my kids won't eat. Hey, it's, it's yoga. No, actually people do care. So what is Krishna really talking about here? Um, we're going to talk about this. Now, that verse I just read gives the negative definition of karma yoga. Do your work, but give up the attachment. 
But in the very next verse, Krishna says there's a positive aspect to it. And this is something I want to bring out again and again until you can't stand it anymore. That um, in real karma yoga, there is a negative aspect, but there's also a positive aspect. So immediately after saying that give up the attachment, do your work, but give up the attachment, uh, Krishna then says that you have to take shelter of buddhi. You have to take shelter of buddhi, intelligence. And you do your work with buddhi. That's how you avoid the attachment. But what is buddhi? Buddhi, according to the chapter 2 of the Bhagavad Gita, is the understanding that you are not your body, you're an eternal spiritual being, and all temporary things are not really where it's at, and that you know, all things must pass, and that you have to focus on the spiritual. So when Krishna says, that's why you give up the attachment, because you understand yourself to be an eternal spiritual being, an eternal person. That's why you give up the attachment. You understand the body is just a covering. In fact, um, I, I, let me go through the Gita, just a few of the important first verses of the Gita. When chapter 2 begins, chapter 1, Arjun's giving his arguments, and they don't work because at the end of all his arguments, he kind of collapses on his chariot. So then Krishna says, okay, let's talk about this. So as Krishna starts teaching, uh, one of the first things he says in 2.12 is that all of us are eternal individual souls. That's the first thing he wants to establish, that Arjun, you forgot something like who you are and who all these soldiers are. All these people on the battlefield, you forgot who they all are. They are within bodies, they have physical bodies, the bodies of warriors, but they're really spiritual beings, and they've always existed, and they always will exist. And this is important because, also because the Bhagavad Gita is part of the Vedanta thing, you know, the three Vedanta books, the Upanishads, Brahma Sutras, and then the Bhagavad Gita. And some Vedanta theories are that when we become enlightened, uh, we're not persons anymore. We all merge into each other. We're not individual souls. But here Krishna is saying very clearly, the Sanskrit is Never was there a time when I did not exist, nor you, nor all these kings. All of us will continue to exist. Sarve Vayam, all of us. The Chaivanap Abhishyama. Literally, it is not the case that we will not exist. All of us, individually, will exist forever. And, Krishna says, all of us have uh, always existed in the past. This is not the biblical notion of eternal. Yes, you have a question? I know this is kind of off topic, but why do they always, when they write it in Sanskrit, why do they always say this is not the case? Why don't they just say this is, like, it's always not selfish, like, you know, you know what I mean? I think if if you go and count them all up, there are a lot of positives, too. Oh, okay. But you can, if you want, you can... uh, because they're always like, instead of saying, we all exist, we all will exist. I think, so, yeah, I, think that we will not. I think sometimes negatives are used to emphasize that we have a very common misconception. Okay. And they do state the positive, but, but sometimes negative is to specifically refute a misconception. Okay. So that this is not a biblical sense of eternal, where you're created at a certain time and then exist forever. This is the idea that you've always existed. You've always existed. There never was a time when you didn't exist. And so you can almost uh, show this visually. If you think of uh, material time, typically has three phases, you know, past, present, and future. And so eternal here doesn't mean that uh, 
you're created at a certain time, and then you just always exist. Like, this is day one, you're just created, now you'll always exist. The idea here is that past, present, and future are within the material realm, and that you ex actually exist up here. This is the Atman. So you are not eternal within material time, you actually stand above material time. And if you think about it, our sense of past, like, like where do we get the sense of past? Uh, we get the sense of past because something's not there anymore. Something that was there isn't there anymore. And therefore, that's how you get the sensation of the past time. Or the future is something which is not there yet. So it's the non-existence of the past and future which makes them different from the present. But the idea is that in the spiritual realm, everything is eternally present. And so actually we exist beyond the, the three phases of material time. So that's, that's very important. That's the sense of eternal in the Bhagavad Gita. And Krishna is saying we are individually eternal. We have always existed. And we always will exist. Krishna says our bodies are like clothes. Vasamsi Jirnani. That's a two... Well, also 2.13 There's an interesting statement. In, in, in chapter 2, text 13, Krishna says that um, Dehi Nosman, that it's sort of an argument for the change of body, that you're, you are a soul, but your body's changing. Krishna says that in this body, Asmin Dehi, in this body, you've already experienced reincarnation. And the example he gives is Komaran Jovanamajaraj, childhood, youth, and old age. Because, you know, we change the body, like your skin reproduces, like every two weeks, you're literally in a new skin every so many weeks, and we're eating and re uh, replacing all the elements of the body. So you literally are reincarnating. Karne, of course, means flesh. And so to reincarnate means to put on a new flesh. We are literally reincarnating, and yet we have a continuous sense of personal identity reflected in the way we talk. We say, I was a child. I was 10 years old. I was 13. I was 18. Whatever. And we have a sense that that was me, or it was you. And yet the body's changing. The body's reincarnating. So this is the example Christian gives at 2.13. That we've already experienced reincarnation in this life. In fact, there's, I, I, this number is floating around that in seven years time you replace the elements of the body. So if you're 21, three, three reincarnations, complete reincarnation. So that's Krishna's, what he's saying, that you've already reincarnated, the same thing goes on after you leave this body. And the, it's just like, then Krishna says, it's like you take off clothes when they're worn out and put on new clothes when the body wears out, you put on a new body. That's the example he gives. Um, and then Krishna says at 2.25 that the soul is inconceivable, but you can know it. Achintya. I don't know if you... Uh, these are very basic points. But you, the Sanskrit word is achintya. You can't chint the soul. I mean, I mean this, is, this is the verbal root here. The soul is unchintable. Which is sometimes translated inconceivable, but actually the word, the word chint means sort of unaided human reason. Like... Because chinta also means to worry about something, like a worry. So if you just sort of sit down and worry about it and think about it and struggle with it all by yourself, Krishna says you won't perfectly understand the soul, but you can't know it. And of course, the method of knowing is by hearing from those who know it. And, and that's why the Vedas are called Shruti, that which is heard. That's another point about the soul. Any questions on these things? These are the very basic... <coughs> Uh, teachings of the Bhagavad Gita. These are the first things that Krishna is telling Arjuna. 
not then. Um, then in text 239, uh, the second chapter, text 39, it's sort of the, the second chapter kind of pivots on the 39th verse. Because in text 39, Krishna says, everything I've told you so far about the eternal soul is buddhi, spiritual intelligence, but in a philosophical sense. Now I'm going to tell you about buddhi in yoga. And we're going to talk about Sankhya, Sankhya systems, someday. And uh, basically these words just mean philosophy and practice. Quite well, right? It's just Sankhya and yoga, philosophy and practice. So Krishna says, I explained the philosophy, now I'm going to explain the practice, and this is buddhi. This is higher understanding. And karma yoga means that you give something up, not just with a certain piety, like, okay, I love you, I'll work for you but with a higher understanding that we're all eternal souls. And now there's more to be said about this karma yoga, actually. Um, Krishna says that, I mean, well, that you give up all your selfish desires, but you're satisfied in yourself. You understand yourself as a spiritual being. And that the only real loophole, I, I mean, there's... Um, there's a statement in here which is not exactly, it, it's sort of right, but not exactly correct. And that is, attachment to the outcomes of actions binds us, while renunciation of such attachment results in the highest attainment. What Krishna actually says, if you want to get very precise here, uh, in fact, he says it, I'll give you the verse 3.9.gita. What Krishna actually says is that in this world, this world, Ayangloka, this world is the bondage of karma. And uh, this is the term Krishna uses. Karma bandha, the word bandha is related to our English word bondage. Uh, and karmas, anyway, so the bondage of working this world. You do something and then you get a karmic reaction. Good or bad karma, you have to come back to this world, take birth again and die again, grow old again, become diseased, to get your reward. Whatever you do, you've got to come back and get your trophy. And that means you're stuck. That's samsara. You have to keep coming back. And Krishna says, anyatra, the only loophole, the only loophole, he says, actually, is not giving up the attachment as it states there. What Krishna states, the loophole is uh, yajna, sacrifice. Sacrifice. And Krishna says, only action which is performed for sacrifice will actually free you from karma, or is free of karma. That's it, that verse. Now, if you think of the Vedic system, offering sacrifices and so on, Krishna is saying that ultimately sacrifice has to be offered to God for our liberation. And that's the way you get out of karma. So Krishna also says the same thing, for example, at 4.23. I don't have to write, I mean, yeah, you're all... English speakers. So at, at 4.23, Krishna says that for someone who is freed of attachment, gata sangasya, their attachment is gone, muktasya, they're liberated, gyanavasi, to change us out, their consciousness is situated in understanding, and who is, perf who is acting for sacrifice, yajjaya charata karma. Without, the, without that formal offering to the Supreme, you can be detached, uh, but there's still a problem. And why is there a problem? I mean, why do you have to make an offering to the Supreme? And uh, to get to that, I want to talk about the Gita's technical, precise definition of the difference between material and spiritual. 
And this is definition which is not really given in the book, but it's there in the Gita. And that's why I wrote this little list here. You may remember that um, we talked about the gunas, which are um, the three qualities. It's like, okay, sattva, goodness, then rajas, passion, tamas, ignorance. Think of your own life. I mean, sometimes there are days when you're having like really peaceful, serene days. You really feel great. You're happy. You like everybody. And the world looks beautiful to you. And oh my God, look at that beautiful bird on the tree. You know, just one of those very beautiful, serene days. Other days you hate everybody. So, and some days we're very passionate. Some days we're like really driven, like I haven't got time to talk to you right now. I got to get this done. And no, I don't want to look at the bird in the tree. So, there are days in which we're very peaceful and happy and full of love and that's sattva and days in which we're very passionate and impatient and days in which we're really just overcome by the dark side of the force. And, you know, and there's, there's music. There's music which is kind of like dark and, you know, recommends you go out and shoot a policeman or something. <laughs> and there's music which is sort of like very passionate and, and, you know, really, and there's music which is kind of like really peaceful and serene. There are foods like that. Some foods are very passionate. Some foods are really like nasty. And, you know, they were canned about a few years before World War II. <laughs> and some foods are sort of pure and healthy and fresh and so on. So Krishna talks about this in the Gita, foods and motivations and, and everything is in these three qualities. So these are the three qualities of material life. Now what Krishna says is that to be spiritual is to go beyond these three gunas. To go beyond these three gunas. Now, say someone is virtuous, like Gandhi was, was obviously a very virtuous person and a, a courageous person and, and a, obviously a very powerful figure in Indian history. And yet, according to the Gita, virtue, worldly virtue, where you care about worldly justice and uh, morality, you care about people is still one of these gunas. It's the highest one. It's virtue, material goodness. And Krishna says it produces wisdom. It produces material happiness. You'll be elevated in your next life. And yet, Krishna says, it's still within the material world. It's not technically <coughs> spiritual. Because, for example, if I say I'm an American because I have an American body or I'm male or I'm so many years old or I'm a certain race or whatever, and therefore, I'm, I'm concerned for justice for people who have a particular type of body, whether it's according to their gender, their race, their ethnicity, their nationality. But I identify with and I'm concerned with people with a particular kind of body. That's still not seeing everyone as an eternal soul. I may see everyone as an eternal soul, but my particular movement or cause or mission may be based on those bodily distinctions. And so that kind of worldly goodness, which is praised in the Gita, and yet it's still not on the spiritual platform, because it's based on bodily identification, as opposed to seeing everyone equally, and everyone includes the animals, by the way, including everyone equally as an eternal spiritual being. There's a very famous verse in the Gita where Krishna says, Panditas and Adarshana, the wise see equally, Vidya, Vinaya, Sampane, whether it's, a, whether it's a learned, gentle Brahman, or, or an untouchable, so-called untouchable, an outcast, an elephant, a cow, a dog, whatever. A truly wise person sees them all equally. So a, 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 
a movement or a mission based on bodily distinctions uh, is technically, it may be virtuous, but it's still on the material platform. And karma yoga. So, because, let's say, for example, we want national independence. In America, we have national independence, and this may come to shock you, but there are some people in this country who are not exactly spiritual. There are actually a lot of very selfish people in this country and in every other country in the world. And yet we have national independence. So gaining political independence doesn't necessarily mean that someone's going to make spiritual progress. It doesn't necessarily mean that. So uh, acting directly for the spiritual benefit of persons, getting them out of samsara. Remember the shramana movements where you have to get out of samsara you have to get past the cycle of reincarnation. You have to end all of your suffering. It's almost like the difference between, say, you go to a hospital and you have a disease, and say the nursing staff comes in and treats you, tries to make you comfortable, treat your pain, and so on. But ultimately, the doctor has to come in and actually treat the disease. And so the idea is that making people comfortable in this world is certainly something we should do. It's not that, like, who cares about your body? Obviously, people we should do all we can for justice to make people comfortable in this world. But what about the disease? It's like having a hospital with nurses but no doctors. Actually, it might work better. But anyway, so, but the idea is that what about the real, the real disease according to all these movements, going back to the Upanishads, to Buddhism, to Shankara, the Shaman movements, they all agree that the problem is that we're stuck in this cycle of birth and death. We're rotating taking birth and dying again and again. That's the disease. The symptoms of that problem are, for example, there's injustice in the world. We're suffering in different ways. And so we want to attend to the suffering, but what about the real disease? What about solving suffering once and for all, so that eternally one will not suffer again? That's the real, that's the real treatment. And so uh, alleviating ameliorating, alleviating people, uh, our suffering on the bodily platform, politically, physically, and so on, is something that should be done, but there's the real disease that has to be talked about. When we get to the real disease, like why are we in this material world at all? Why are we suffering at all? Why are we reincarnating? Then it's considered to be, strictly speaking, a spiritual uh, approach. And so the Gita does make that distinction. So then you could ask the question, could someone be a karma yogi but not be technically on the spiritual platform? Can karma yoga simply be a virtuous, worldly project? And uh, the answer? First tell me what I, what I can win. So, I said the answer is, a, yes, you want to, go ahead. Sorry, I was just going to say, how is it yoga if it's, if it's worldly? Well, you could take the word yoga in different ways. I mean, you actually take the word yoga in hundreds of ways, but... The word yoga basically means practice. So if you are practicing your karma, in the sense, karma yoga, in the sense that you are trying to be a better person in the world, like the description of Gandhi, who obviously was a very serious, uh, sincere person, and he was trying to act without attachment. So that, in a sense, is a practice, and, and you're practicing on your karma. But yoga, in the higher sense of actually connecting you to the Supreme, uh, is virtuous work in this world karma yoga? That's a good question. 
And you can read the Gita. Actually, it'd be interesting to see what you all think. You can read the Gita and uh, let me know what you think. Any questions on that so far? There's another thing uh, that pains me to tell you that I have to touch upon one other, another point in our book here. Um, let's see what it is. Oh, the jnana yoga thing. That's a little problematic also. Uh, the case study, the Hindu saint Ramana Maharshi, who is an ideal example, no, I'm sorry, an ideal exemplar, this is on page 159, an ideal exemplar of the jnana yoga approach. And we, that's on page 159, on page 160, it turns out his final realization was, can be maybe characterized as a form of non-dualistic Vedanta. The problem here is that, I mean, there's no problem with this saint, because I'm sure he was a saint. But the problem is that this is in the context of a discussion of the Bhagavad Gita. And in the Bhagavad Gita, there's a very different notion of jnana. Uh, I've just given one example that, um, according to the Bhagavad Gita, we are all individual eternal souls. All of us individually have always existed and always will exist. This is found in the Upanishads also, by the way. And so... Uh, Krishna, for example, at, at verse, this is a very important verse, 719 in the Gita. Krishna says explicitly, well, I'll give you this actually quickly, after many births, after many births, one actually gets jnana, jnana van. In other words, jnana yogis are like, want to be, you know, trying to get knowledge. But Krishna says, you've actually got the jnana, you're there, you arrived, you made it, you have the knowledge. What is the person then do? Krishna says, that person surrenders to me. Vasudeva Sarvam, realizing that God is everything. And yet there's a surrender, there's a submission to God. It's not the non-dual Advaita idea, where you are God, because there, there, there are not two things in the universe. Remember Shankar? There's only one thing that exists, and it's you and me, and, and you and me don't really exist as you and me, it's just this one thing. And we say you and me just because we're bewildered still, but when we clear up our heads, then we'll stop saying things like you and me. And but that's not what Krishna's teaching. Krishna says we're, we are eternally individual souls. Never was there a time when I did not exist, nor you, nor these kings. And in the future, all of us will continue to exist. All of us are eternal. And Krishna says that when the, when the person practices jnana yoga and finally gets the jnana, jnana van, they surrender to God. They submit to God with devotion. So this saint, who I'm sure was a saint, may be an ideal exemplar of jnana yoga, but not exactly the jnana yoga taught in the Bhagavad Gita. That's what I wanted to say. So any questions on that? Yes. So the Gita, for example, uses the term Brahma Nirvana, Nirvana in the Absolute. 
So some scholars say, well, that proves it comes after Buddhism. And the, and, and the Gita takes the word from the Buddhas. Well, what if the Buddhas took the word from the Gita? No one ever really explains this. We always hear different chronologies, and no one ever really explains it, perhaps because they don't really know. And so uh, the short answer is they don't really know the chronology. But a few more things in the uh, few minutes I have left before you desert. Uh, Krishna does a real attack. Not an attack. Well, he really kind of blasts the Vedas, which is very interesting, quite revolutionary. And uh, let's get the Sanskrit out here. Uh, it starts, the fun starts at 2.42, where Krishna talks about a group of people whom he describes as Veda Vada Ratha, who are taking pleasure in the words of the Vedas. They're dedicated to the words of the Vedas and who say, Nanyarasti Vadina. Their goal is to go to heaven, exactly the says, You know, like, do the Vedic rituals, do the fire sacrifices, go to heaven. And just like Mimamsas, they say there's nothing more than this. And Krishna says, these people, because they are attached to material things, don't get it. They think the Vedas are simply for material rewards, but that's not really where it's at. And because of their attachment, they can't really understand. And then Krishna says at 2.45, Trigunya, that the Vedas really have as their subject matter, oops, these three gunas. And he tells Arjuna, you have to rise above this. Trigunya Vishaya Veda, Nis Trigunya Bhavarjuna. The Vedas are talking about life in the material world. You have to transcend this. You have to transcend these Vedic rituals. Uh, then again at 2.52, Krishna says, when you're in the Bhuti, when your intelligence is no longer bewildered, it's very, it's, it's kind of like, uh, it's kind of like, uh, almost sarcastic, ironically, he says, Tadagantas in your Veda, then you will go Vedaless. Near Veda, the same near, oops, that used to be up there, like Nirvana, without, then you will go near Veda, Vedaless. You won't care anymore about all these rituals and all these material programs, like do this sacrifice, go to this heaven. Krishna says, when you really understand you won't care about these things because you have a spiritual goal. He says that uh, you'll become indifferent to all that is heard and to be heard, namely in these, in these ritual literatures. And uh, one minute left. Krishna said, one interesting thing at 259, which is, I think it's just good practical wisdom. Krishna says that you cannot renounce the world just by like fasting, for example, like, okay, I'm going to renounce. I'm not going to eat very much. I'm not going to sleep very much. I'll be celibate. I'll do this. I'll do that. Krishna says, even though you may renounce these things, you, inside, you still have a taste for it. There's something inside of you that still desires it. And so, for example, if you fast and make your body weak, so you just physically, you can't just do it because you're too weak. Or, or you weaken yourself by austerity. Krishna says the desire is still there. As soon as you have a good meal, you'll be like, all the desires will spring back to life. Krishna says the real secret of giving up the world is to have a higher taste. The words he uses are parangrishwa. You have to experience something higher. You have to outgrow material enjoyment by experiencing something higher. And, and then it's like you stop playing with your toys at a certain age because other things are more interesting to you. So Krishna says literally you have to grow in consciousness and outgrow lower desires by experiencing something which is just more pleasurable to you, something which is higher. 
And uh, one last thing. He also gives a very interesting analysis of how pure consciousness becomes degraded. And that's that um, he goes through the whole sequence at 262. He says that we meditate on something. You meditate on a sense object like, like a boy looks at a girl or a girl looks at a boy or you look at a, a car you want to buy. You just meditate on something. And Krishna says from that meditation on that physical object, sangha, attachment arises. Sangha, you become attached to it. And then uh, from that sangha, if you cultivate that attachment, it, it becomes karma. You really have this strong desire that you can't shake. You really think you need it. It becomes like a need. First you meditate on it, then you become kind of attached to it. It can be a person. And then you think, I need it, or I need him, or I need her. And then when you can't get it, when you can't be satisfied, or if you do get it, you're still not satisfied, you become angry, crimes of passion. And then from this anger, you, you become bewildered. As you become bewildered, you forget your higher knowledge. When you forget higher knowledge, your intelligence stops functioning, and then your, your spiritual life collapses. So Krishna goes, that's at uh, two, it starts at 262. Krishna goes through a whole sequence of how pure consciousness becomes degraded. Anyway, I'm going to stop there. Time's up. Thank you very much. See you on Wednesday.